Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. Batman paced back and forth in the tiny room, kicking $100 bills about as he planned his next move. I know the Joker's planning a major disaster for the carnival goers today, and I need to make sure he never pulls it off. It's innocent lives I'm worried about here. I see. Shall I summon the authorities, or would you rather speak to the boy Wonder? Good question, Alfred. Well, what would you do? If you want to call the police and let them know what's going on at the Joker's Carnival, press 2. To call Robin and get his help, press 3. Press 2 or 3 now. Who would have thought that I'd find the central question to this entire season distilled in a Batman choose-your-own-adventure audio cassette tape from the early 90s? But there it is. You're facing injustice. Do you notify the authorities or take the law into your own hands? And if you choose the latter, does that make you a hero or a villain or something in between? Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. We started this odyssey into the world of vigilante justice with the Sundance TV docuseries No One Saw a Thing, which explores the 1981 killing of Ken Rex McElroy in broad daylight in Skidmore, Missouri. It's a case that harkens back to the frontier justice of the Old West, which even back in the days of Jesse James was already being turned into myth and entertainment. Perhaps that's why the figure of the vigilante has been so persistent and celebrated in our culture. Over the course of this season, we've looked at many different flavors of vigilante justice. And through it all, we've been holding these real-world examples up against the vigilante heroes that draw crowds to our theaters every summer. Why are we so obsessed with the idea of lawless do-gooders in colorful outfits cleaning up the streets? What aspect of ourselves is this art imitating? And what happens when these comic book myths make their way back into the real world? To answer that question, we need to look at the vigilante superhero we measure all others, real and imagined, against. The most complex, haunted, 
imperfect hero who brings out the best and worst of our impulses. Not the hero we need, but the one we deserve. Batman. So, I called up Brett Culp, the filmmaker behind Legends of the Night, a documentary telling the true stories of people inspired to overcome adversity and make a positive impact in their communities because of their love of Batman. I'm happy for a part of my claim to fame in the world to be related to Batman. <laughs> okay. Well, what's your take on why superheroes like Batman are so popular? I think Batman and really all vigilante superhero characters speaks to the heart of us that Man, when things are wrong with the world, you don't stand for the system, you stand for what's right. And if that means breaking the rules, you break the rules. But Brett was also quick to point out that we love Batman not just for what he represents, but for what he's fighting against. I'm out of gas. And I'm out of patience. We delight in watching Batman punch in the face this villain that is symbolic of our problem of security or freedom or chaos or greed or whatever it is that we're going through. There's a Batman villain for that. And to watch Batman of his own self-reliance and initiative fight through that and outside the system it gives us this sense of empowerment that often we're afraid to embrace. Listen, Joker, you're sick. Well, maybe I am a little off. But what are you going to do? Lock me in the loony bin? I'm already here. Deep down, we want to be that person. But then our mind kicks in and says, wait a second, what if we all did this? It would be chaos with a character like Batman. We love him, but we also, if we get too intellectual about it, we get a little confused about whether or not we're supposed to love him. And this is what makes Batman one of the most compelling vigilante heroes. He exists in this gray area between justice and injustice, altruism and selfishness. I've heard people theorize before about the idea that Batman is a story about a rich white guy who gets in his car and goes downtown at night and beats up poor people. And wouldn't it be much better if instead he became a full-time philanthropist? We're not as excited about that, and that doesn't touch our pain as much as the other version. The story we love is about the underdog who fights through their powerlessness to become someone heroic. But I do think that there are many stories of people who felt very small and the pain that they experienced may turn them into tyrants. That's the flip side of it. The best villains are not villains that think they're evil. They're villains that think they're the good guy. That is the difficulty when you go from powerlessness to power. You might think that now you know better than anybody else, but you don't have that self-awareness of what's really motivating you. And for Brett Culp, the heart of that motivation, the driver of vigilantism, is a need for control. I think it is core to our emotional, psychological makeup to feel that we have freedom, that we have choices, 
And when we find ourselves in an environment where, whether it's the family we grew up in or the society we grew up in, made us feel like we were not in control, I think something roars up in us that can look a lot like that vigilante thing, whether for good or bad. This gets at the question we've been asking all season. Vigilantism can look horrific or heroic. What makes Batman's variety more good than bad? One of the things that creators that Batman did in the 1970s is they made two rules, that Batman would never use guns and that Batman would never kill. Hmm. These are going to be his two morals. And that made people more comfortable with the character. I think that's got to come back to a belief that I'm not just doing this for my own ego. I truly do believe it is in the service of something bigger than me. Is it worth hurting others to help some others? Is it worth the violence, the hatred to accomplish that? Of course, we never had to process that in the era when Batman wore bright tights and fought cartoonish villains with elaborate contraptions. Those early stories weren't set in the real world, and they didn't use the character of Batman to interrogate these moral questions. That all changed when Frank Miller reinvented Batman in the mid-'80s, replacing the campy Adam West version with a gritty and morally complex Batman that influenced the Tim Burton and later Christopher Nolan movies. And that is the first time where we get this sense that maybe Batman is hurting people because inside of himself he's hurting, and this is sort of his catharsis for his own pain. Batman does come from this place of brokenness, but he says, you know, I'm going to help others. I'm going to make a difference. It's that sense of I am not going to be a victim of my past. Is Batman a good model for that? Is he dealing with his emotional trauma in a good way, or should Batman be in therapy? You know, I mean, first of all, my answer is going to be Batman should be in therapy because pretty much all (laughs) of us should be in therapy, probably. (laughs) And in a way, Batman does have a therapist in his butler, Alfred. Alfred is the one that always says, the warrior in you cannot win this battle, only the human in you can win this battle. And that's why the more he stays isolated, the more violent he becomes, but Mm. the more he allows other voices in, voices like Alfred, Catwoman, Robin, the more he becomes a stable force. What we need are more diverse voices speaking to us so that we can see things on a broader scale so that it can inform and educate us about what kind of hero the world really is calling us to be. I would love to see more people be personal vigilantes in their own life to buck against the fears that they have and essentially say, I'm going to go Batman on that. To Brett Culp, Batman is more than a comic book vigilante hero. He's an idea, an inspiration, a source of self-confidence, and even community. He's the totem that helps a young kid survive cancer. It's an optimistic and metaphorical view of our culture's most celebrated vigilante hero. But some people take the idea of Batman a lot more literally. People like Dr. T.J. Cuenca, who runs the Superhero Foundry in Las Vegas.
The world is radically changing. It's changing into something that has never been seen outside the pages of a comic book. Do you train for sport? Do you train for looks? Or do you train for a purpose? Dr. TJ Cuenca is a professional fighter, knife thrower, stuntman, fight choreographer, and dentist. But that's just his Bruce Wayne identity. Once he dons his mask, he becomes... Hey guys, this is Bladepool. So uh, I'm going to be doing a lot of crazy things today. Uh, I've got these knives right here. Bladepool is Dr. Cuenca's alter ego, an alternate reality version of Deadpool from Earth 597. It's in that persona, and others, that he and his wife run combat training classes for wannabe Batmans in a converted warehouse in Las Vegas. Uh, look over here. You've got our parkour area. You have weapons that are fantasy weapons. You got weapons from the Western era. European weapons right here. You got the Mongolian weapons. You got weapons from Japan. On the other side of our studio, of course, we have our archery range. This is, of course, our restroom. And, of course, our world-famous knife-throwing range. Knife-throwing and axe-throwing. This is our wall of knives. And, of course, you can see this is our whiteboard. But it's not just about knife-throwing and parkour. You don't need to dress up in a costume to throw knives. So why are Dr. Cuenca and his students inhabiting alter egos as they train? We're trying to create people with the mentality of a superhero. A lot of people have said, you guys are teaching something that's very different than traditional martial arts. You know, you guys act like superheroes. And that's what occurred to me. I thought, why not? Isn't that an ideal way of thinking? Not just making their bodies stronger, faster, more efficient, but also seeing the city as a community that they belong to and that they need to protect. Whether it's CrossFit or Kung Fu or the Scottish Caber Toss, so many of us train our bodies to be powerful and skillful. And while some of these pursuits, like yoga, involve spiritual as well as physical mastery, most of them stop at the boundaries of the self. That's what separates a fighter from a hero. The fighter is in it for himself. His opponent is another fighter. The hero's opponent is injustice, and the hero only wins by improving his community. It's a unique form of training Dr. Cuenca is offering, and there is a wide array of people drawn to it. We have students who are special forces. I have one student who was with the Secret Service. I've got kids that are four years old throwing knives from like five meters, and then all the way up to a 71-year-old guy who works as a professional bodyguard. So it's really a wide range of people who are interested in the superhero mentality. So how do you encourage your students to find their inner Superman? Well, Superman's not real. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Batman is actually possible. I tell these guys, okay, you, your name's not Mark right now because you're training like Mark. So Mark sucks. Mark can't do <laughs> push-ups. He can't do more than a single pull-up. You're not Mark anymore. Who do you want to be? It's like, oh, well, who's my hero? Uh, yeah, Batman. I'm like, okay, you're Batman. How many push-ups can Batman do? How many pull-ups can Batman do? And these guys push themselves to those ideals. But again, it's not just about push-ups and pull-ups. It's about ethics. 
We go to a lot of schools, sometimes in costumes, and we do talk about gangs. And there's a lot, there are a lot in Vegas. So it's almost like you're offering a different route to feeling yeah. powerful. Yes, exactly. You got it right, Amanda. These gangs, they will force someone to join them no matter what. What we're trying to do is that here's an alternative, dude, okay? We don't want to be bad guys. Do you know if any of your students have taken their superhero skills to the streets? A lot of the guys just want to do something that help the homeless. You know, they'll come out there with cases of water, just pass them out to them, and they help out that little old lady who doesn't have air conditioning in her house. They love to help people. Whether it's, uh, you know, fixing somebody's clogged sink or, you know, probably nobody's trying to stop a bullet or anything. We don't advertise it, we don't talk about it. They don't want anybody knowing what they do. They do things out of the goodness of their heart. And that's, in, in my way, in the definition of being a superhero, to do things without asking for recognition. Because when you do, you're no longer a superhero, you just, you're a narcissist. Learning how to throw knives doesn't seem all that relevant to feeding the homeless. You can do that without badass parkour skills. But Cuenca's insight is that the superhero trappings, the costume, the weapons, the combat skills, can be used to instill and encourage a heroic communitarian mindset that doesn't necessarily need to be enacted through violence. And yet, Cuenca also pointed out to me that sometimes the combat skills are necessary. He models his parkour training around escaping an active shooter scenario, like the one that happened in Las Vegas several years ago. And it's not all water bottles for the homeless. When violence breaks out on the street, Cuenca is prepared to intervene. I've done things on my own. I can either confirm or deny my involvement in anything. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean. When you're talking about the ethics of superheroes with your students, how do you talk to them about vigilante justice? Well, first of all, we explain how you can bend the law. So we explain what can and can't be done based on the amount of energy being given to you. You must give an equal amount. So somebody decides accidentally pushes me, I'm not going to break their arm. You know, if somebody tries to hit me in the back of the head with a baseball bat, I'm not going to talk nicely to him. We're not trying to get in the way of the police. We're not trying to protect our police officers, but just having a presence. We acknowledge the fact that there are people out there who will take things in their own hands because there's laws just not doing anything about it. So there's the dark side and there's the light side of, like I say, being a superhero. When it comes to vigilante justice, in my opinion only, just my opinion, sometimes it's necessary. You know, because there's Mm -hmm. just some people who get away with things. I mean, I love my kids. I have my daughters, okay? If anything were to happen to them, I don't know what I would do. The question of what you do when the worst happens has a much more complicated answer when you've trained yourself to be able to put a knife in someone's chest at 10 paces. I believe TJ Cuenca when he says he doesn't know how he'd react if someone harmed his family. As in the comic book world, the fire of trauma makes us who we are. But this isn't just comic book talk. There's a man in my hometown of Seattle with his own traumatic origin story, his own dilemma of identity, his own bulletproof supersuit. Some call him a real life superhero. Others call him a vigilante. Still others, a fool. What's certain is that he's controversial 
and that he brings the superhero mentality into the real world to such a degree that it makes people uncomfortable. Dan was calling 911, but help flew in before he finished dialing. From the right, this guy comes dashing in, just wearing this skin-tight, rubber, black and golden suit, and starts chasing him away. What Dan didn't know is just about every night, an anonymous Seattle man strolls into this comic store, enters a hidden back room, and emerges transformed. Ben Fodor, a.k.a. Phoenix Jones, he has no superpowers, but he does have a wealth of combat training. He's an MMA champion, a bulletproof suit reinforced with stab plates, and he carries non-lethal weapons, a stun baton and pepper spray. Like any good superhero, he's elusive, but I was able to contact him through a mutual confidant. Our first scheduled meeting got delayed though, due to an unexpected hospital visit. While out patrolling, he'd been struck in the face with a flashlight, and his girlfriend texted me a photo of his busted-up mouth. It's situations like that that make local law enforcement skeptical of Phoenix Jones. They don't exactly view him as a hero. To get their perspective, I spoke with Pete Holmes, who has served as a Seattle City attorney since 2010. Patrol officers are on patrol precisely to, you know, help keep the peace and to both deter and intervene in crime. When someone does that on their own, a private individual who's neither trained nor authorized, very little good can come of it. Mr. Phoenix Jones was quite a character early in my second term here in Seattle and uh, was a, a gentleman people wanted to like. And yet when I had to speak with some of his victims, uh, and there's no other word for it but victims, um, you know, you could really learn firsthand the downside of misguided superheroes like Phoenix. Jones says he thought it was a fight and tried to break it up. He rushed into the group in full garb and just administered pepper spray rather indiscriminately. The crowd Jones thought he was helping turned on him. The police were called, and they quickly discerned that it was really a problem of Mr. Jones's own creation. And they arrested him. He spent the night in jail, uh, and uh, they brought assault charges to us for consideration. We ultimately decided to decline charges. And I think that that kind of publicity, Amanda, is what it really took for him to finally realize that uh, it was uh, himself, his young child, um, and innocent people that he was supposedly trying to protect that he was actually putting at harm. And so he was quite aware that, you know, one more act like this, and that was it. He had used his get-out-of-jail-free cards. From Pete Holmes' perspective, Phoenix Jones is at worst a criminal. At best, a nuisance. If nothing else, you know, Mark Twain has that old saying that no man is of so little use that he can't be held up as a bad example. The truth of the matter is, it's not glamorous. It's about data. That's not exciting stuff, but that's how law enforcement is effective. Use the tools that we have. We can't be, uh, each and every one of us, the star, the savior. Uh, and uh, and, and there, that's, the, uh, that's the, the takeaway. Be a participant and understand what is the best role you can play. 
you don't have to be a hero. I don't disagree with Pete Holmes about the unglamorous nature of the justice system. Keeping society safe is mostly a monotonous task. And that perspective has led him to be very dismissive of Phoenix Jones. He doesn't take him seriously. Most people don't. The self-proclaimed superhero who was arrested this week, well, they've unmasked him. Phoenix Jones was in court yesterday in Seattle, accused of pepper spraying people. He said that he was breaking up a fight, self-defense. A costumed crime fighter armed with only a can of pepper spray and reckless abandon. A comedian even posed as a jokey supervillain to counter Phoenix Jones. It's time to get real, Jones. The community would be better off without you. You're doing more harm than good. You must be stopped once and for all. My name is Rex Velvet, the people's villain, if you will. Everywhere you look, people laugh at his expense. But Phoenix Jones isn't joking about any of this. When he came over to my house, we sat across from each other in my stuffy vocal booth and had a long conversation. It began on a light note, but I found him to be anything but flippant. And we went places I was not expecting. So me and my manager, Peter Tangen, actually, we talked about this interview, right? Yeah. So I'm a true crime fan. So when he's like, he doesn't give me any warning at all. He just says, hey, man, Amanda Knox is going to call you. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, like, I feel like she doesn't really need a superhero at this point. Like, she has a great attorney. (laughs) What does she need me for? And and, and then I started thinking, if anyone's going to get feeling alienated, Mm. you're going to get it. I thought that you'll understand about about people wanting stuff from you. When Mm. not only do they not deserve what they want, you've already given quite enough. Mm. Maybe it wasn't what you wanted in the way that you wanted it, Mm. but it was already enough, you know? Sure. What are you referring to specifically? Okay, here's a good example. Okay. I thought about this and was like, I want to fight crime. I got an attorney. I did six months of legal training. I got a bulletproof suit. I went out and decided I'm going to go fight crime. That's me. I'm going to go out and fight crime. I have no legal authority to do so. There's a questionable training issue, and you don't know me. And I'm going to go out and fight crime in a mask, and yes, I am that guy. But here's why I'm okay. (laughs) And that's always a hard thing to explain, Hmm. why I'm okay. And that isolates you because you have to always make sure people think that you're okay. Hmm. It's just recently that I've decided to say, you know what? I'm really not okay, and years of fighting crime has made me definitely not okay. And, like, I'm not dangerous, but this took an emotional toll on me, and I really thought people would look at it differently and think of it more as a public service announcement. Like, here's what I have to offer? Right, like, my gift is violence. I have to use it somewhere, right? So I might as well use it against bad people. And I feel like I'm a fighter. Mm -hmm. I mean, fighters fight, right? You have to figure out where to apply your skills. Mm. And my skills, I mean, I made an area to apply them. I mean, I spent like, you know, 10 years, a decade of my life fighting crime. I've been shot three times. I've been stabbed. I've been arrested 119 times. What does that prove? That You can say I'm not a superhero. Okay, what's a superhero? I'm wearing a bulletproof suit. I had a bulletproof car. I'm chasing down bad guys. The mob put a hit out for me. The ATF raided my house. The police put out wanted posters for me. I got through all of it. But you still haven't convinced people you're okay. So at a certain point, I realized it's not going to work. They're not going to get it. 
they don't know what you are because they're not like you and they're never going to be like you. So now you have to decide how you want to feel about yourself because no one's going to feel a certain way about you. Mm. And I feel like you have to understand. Like, people feel a way about you. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, it's... Uh, I'm feeling that way even just now these days where it's like everyone has an opinion on my wedding. And it's a it's an interesting culture that we live in where it's like there's a lot of outrage um, that people indulge. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's what I don't get. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so how did this all start? I stopped my first crime in December of 2009. Damn. I was discovered in September of 2010. I got caught on security camera breaking up a carjacking. So, as weird as it sounds, you don't put on a rubber suit and go out and fight crime and assume this is how you're going to get famous. You assume this is how you're going to die alone. I didn't want anyone to know what I was doing. It wasn't like I was going to tell my parents. My mom found out hours before the TV found out who I was. Like, I kept it under wraps. He didn't go talk about it. Hmm. I mean, so... The, the motivations really change, and you got to kind of break them down into almost seasons. Mm-hmm. The beginning season was a real, I can make a difference and go after these bad guys. And if people could do what I would do, they would do it too. They just, they just can't because they don't have those certain set of skills. And if I, can, if I can go out and use my skills that I have for something good, I will. In the middle, it turned into these people wouldn't do this if they could mm-hmm. because they're not like me. They don't care about people the way that I do. Why not? I never felt the need to ask them why. Mm. But the minute that I do something that they think is questionable, every one of them came at me and asked me why I'm a superhero. You didn't ask me that when I stopped a city bus from being robbed. You didn't ask me that when, you know, I was the first person on the scene for the shootings in Belltown. You didn't ask me that when I got a target to chip in and give 500 shirts, socks, and shoes to homeless people. You didn't chip, you didn't, you didn't care. Mm-hmm. But the minute it messes with a little bit of your sensibility, you have no loyalty to me. But I have enough loyalty to you to not know you, put it in a suit, and go out and risk my entire life for you. And the way it made me feel was mad. And then the ending, I've realized that whatever made me fight crime, it's really simple. I was adopted, and that made me feel like I'm not worthy and don't deserve things. And I've spent my entire life proving to people that my adoption was a mistake. I'm a five-time world champion. I'm a superhero. I'm the only one in the world. I've stopped people from dying. I've won awards. I'm a good guy. Y'all made a mistake. And when I figured out that's what it was about... I had to really revamp the way I fight crime. And now in the, the glory years where I've realized that altruism is not real. No one goes out to do something for others. They think they do. But it's really all about healing yourself. And that's kind of where I'm at. I, I couldn't not fight crime because I need to fight crime. Mm-hmm. I can't not help people because I need to. And it makes me feel good. And I'm going to keep risking my own life and my well-being because I like doing it. And it was really wrong of me to put that pressure on people, but it was also wrong of them to make me explain myself if I don't, I'm not making you explain yourself. Mm-hmm. It's just as weird for you guys to go to work every day and sit behind an office from 9 to 5 with a person that you hate and then go to his kid's birthday party and pretend like you're friends than it is for me to put on a mask and go protect you guys from a random mugger. What I do makes way more sense to me than what you do. <sighs> Crime fighting is therapy. In a weird way, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to take you back again. Take me back. What does it take to become a superhero? Have you ever found something inside yourself that was going to be there regardless? Yes. My love of cats. (laughs) Okay, perfect. That's actually a really good example. That's a really good one. No matter what you do, you're going to like cats. 
there's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do about that, right? <laughs> Perfect. So no matter what, I'm going to stop people from being bullies, and I don't let people talk to other people in front of me the way I wouldn't like it. I just don't put up with it. You can't change the world. But there's a bubble that I live in, and all of my friends feel secure and safe because of that bubble. That's what my goal is, is to have a, a weird, non-realistic bubble of everywhere I walk. In your bubble, what does it look like? Do you know what soft power is? I don't. Tell me. It's the government's, like, where they give aid to a country for so long that if they don't give aid to that country, that country would starve. So they have soft power. My life has become from a life of hard power to a life of soft power. I originally assumed that hard power was what would stop people. I'm going to punch you in the face if you're punching someone else in the face. But I've learned it's actually the soft power that makes a difference. For example, um, I was at a restaurant. We're sitting here at dinner. There's like a fight outside the window of this restaurant. And people at the restaurant start looking at me. People are like, you're going to do something? People are expecting me to lead them. So at that point, I was able to stand up and just say, hey, you guys call 911. You five dudes come out with me so I have witnesses. We walked outside. I'm like, what are you guys doing? And instantly the fight stopped. Right? But that's soft power. Those five guys don't actually care about the fight. They just wanted to be the dude with a camera next to Phoenix Jones. The people I told to call 911, they weren't going to do anything because they like the Phoenix Jones idea. They want to ride that wave. That's the soft power that I have. I've seen enough violence, and it's very effective if you're willing to kill people. But if you're not willing to kill people, violence is not a super effective method. Have you ever been in that position? Where? Where you've had to say to yourself, whatever happens, I might have to kill someone tonight? Oh, several times. The scarier situation is not that I'm thinking I'm going to have to kill them. It's actually that I don't think about killing them. The only people who understand me are criminals. I mean, other superheroes understand me, but most of the superheroes are fake. They're not actually fighting crime. They're, like, giving out sandwiches under a bridge somewhere. They're not, like, they're not, they're not doing what I'm doing. For the record, Phoenix Jones also does that kind of stuff, too. Like when there was a freak snowstorm in Seattle a few years back. Hello, Seattle. I wonder if you were shocked as I was about the freak snow we had. Well, have no fear. See, the city of Seattle will plow main roads, but I will get you out of your own driveway by renting a ridiculous giant plow putting it to my friend's car, dressing up as a superhero, and driving to your location, plowing your vehicle out of where it's at, and or pulling you out of a ditch. He's both that friendly, silly neighbor and the guy casually talking about using deadly force. I saw a guy pistol-whipping another dude outside of a nightclub. I come in, I hit him. The gun came out of his hand. He grabbed it and pulled it back up on me, and I thought to myself, well, now it's him with a gun, me here. And in that moment, I'm like, I'm going to kill him. And I hit him with everything I could, directly aimed for his throat, it's over. He went down, dropped the gun, and the cops eventually came, and they said I was credited with stopping an attempted murder. The guy ended up living. But whether he lived or died has no consequence to me at that point, because he made that choice. Hmm. You die, that's a result of your bad behavior. Mm -hmm. And you knew that when you woke up tonight, put on your criminal outfit, went and took your criminal shower, went and called your criminal buddies, drove to the middle of your criminal city to come out here and do your criminal shit. So don't get mad at me when I put on my superhero suit, came to do my non-criminal stuff with my non-criminal buddies, and you lost because we're trained. Hmm. I consider us playing a game that you well knew the rules to. Okay, but, like, in that game, you can lose too, right? Right. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought you weren't going to come home? Oh, several times. I saw this guy, he was breaking into a car. I caught him in the middle of it. He looked at me and he just goes, hey, man. I'm not going back to jail, bro. He's like, I'm either going to shoot you or we're going to let this go. It was just one of those moments where I'm like, this guy would kill me. It was just real. And I'm like, hey, can you not shoot me on camera? 
Like, I kind of got a bunch of guys on camera behind me. So if you shoot me, it's going to be on camera. It's going to suck for you. It's going to suck for me. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, what do we do here? I'm like, just put your shit back in your pocket and you leave and I'll leave. And he's like, you're willing to do that? I'm like, it's not about you, man. I'm not against you. I'm against the idea of what you're doing. I'm cool with letting you walk. So we shook hands. He walked. Uh, later, Did you actually shake hands? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Because I, mean, I have nothing against you. You play a different game than me. Hmm. But it's your game. It's your moral compass and your moral code. People think it's weird for you to steal and stab people. Think it's weird, people weird for me to dress up in a bulletproof suit and run around fighting crime. We're both weird people on a different fringe. I'm not here to judge you. But the world has rules, and your game goes against those rules. Every game has punishments. I'm the equivalent of that punishment. Like, mm. you play sorry, I'm the little bopper piece in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, like, sure, sure. You don't get mad at the dice for landing on sorry when you're playing the game. That's how the game works. Um, this story, shaking hands with a guy who you know could would and could potentially kill you. Like, it's hard for me to, like, even know what it feels like to be in that situation, to show the restraint that you're talking about showing. Like, well, how do you do that? How do I show restraint? It's not my character. I'm not showing restraint. I'm being me. Here's a better question. How did you let people call you a murderer for years, lock you <laughs> up in jail, and come out and <laughs> smile and have a nice place in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> like, because that's who you are, right? Okay, Your fair. personality, you're a person who's a fighter. You go to jail, you're fighting. I've been in jail every time. I feel a horrible despair feeling and think about killing myself every time I'm there, the whole time. If I was in jail for longer than 30 days, I'd probably kill myself. It's a place I don't belong in my mind. But fighting, that's where I live. Hmm. It's the only place where you can throw logic out the window. It's mech suit versus mech suit. And my <laughs> mech suit is better than yours. It's better than yours because I hate me longer than you have liked you. When I was a kid, I didn't like me. And I trained every day at martial arts because I wanted to be something that I would like and that other people would like. Every day. I was motivated for years. At 14, I was a black belt. At 16, I was, a, I was a kickboxing champion. By 17, I was an MMA world champion. Fighting is what I do. It's where I live. It's the place I can turn off my emotions and say, this is what I've accomplished. Pain physically doesn't hurt me because I'm in so much emotional pain, it doesn't even matter. And like, what are you going to do to me, bro? Hmm. You're going to shoot me? Really? Done that. You're going to take away all my money? Already did that. You're going to call me crazy? Half the world thinks I'm freaking crazy. You're going to put me in jail? Police are my friends, and the ones that aren't my friends want me in jail already more than you do, and they've been trying for years, so knock yourself out. What do you have to bring in this fighting arena? Nothing. The only place you can hurt me is how I feel about me, and I don't like you enough for you to really have that bearing on me. Hmm. So other than the random nightmares I have to deal with from shit that I didn't save with on patrol, you can't hurt me. You're in the only realm where I'm God. I wear better armor. Got better gear. I got better oil. Let's go. Better oil? Oh, yeah. My blood is better. My oh, whole body is better it. than theirs. Everything's been trained. Hmm. Because where you spent time learning how to draw and how to read and how to write, I spent time running and crying and trying to shoot Kai Blast because I didn't have parents and couldn't figure out why no one would love me. And I thought that maybe fighting would make people love me, which is crazy. <laughs> but it's how I felt. And hmm. I did it for 25 years. So... You just have nothing to offer me in a realm of, of combat. You know nothing about violence. You know nothing about physical pain. And I will show that to you. Criminals get it real quick. Fighters get it real quick. You have to kill me because I believe in myself in a way that you don't believe in you, that you could never believe in you. You hmm. just have never been tested. Maybe not you personally. Sure, sure, You sure. might believe in yourself in a way, but other people have never really been tested. They say they believe in shit, but they don't know. Hmm. I know. 
I know $10,000 worth of knowing because that's what it costs to make my suit. I know public harassment. Oh, I know what I believe in. I know what I believe in to the point of losing everything. The government said they would take away my son and never let me see my kid again because I was mentally disturbed. So when people tell me shit, I'm just like, you don't know. You don't know. You, you just don't know. Everybody thinks they know what they're going to do when they get there. You don't know. Mm. I do. In, in when it comes to combat. I hate losing in a level that no one will ever understand. Like, I was in a fight once and I got hit really, really hard. And, like, I was going down and getting knocked out. And there's this, like, brain shortage that happens where your vision kind of pinpoints. Mm-hmm. And I remember the last thought I was thinking is, if you fall over, no one's going to love you. And everything they, they thought about you is right. And the minute I touched the floor, I sprung up and knocked that dude out. Mm-hmm. It's just in my brain, the way I feel, I have to get up. Mm-hmm. You don't. If you fall over, you're still the same guy. You're still you. If I fall over, I'm not still me. Mm-hmm. I'm just not. I mean, is that pressure that you're putting on yourself? Or is that something that you're feeling externally? You know, I don't know where it comes from. I, I try not to, like... Certain things are dangerous to dissect. Okay. Right? There are certain emotional journeys I've personally just not gone down because I don't want to learn. Like what? Here's a good example. I was mad at the family that put me up for adoption, but I never knew it. And then I had my son. Hmm. And I looked at him and I thought to myself, okay, let's walk down the street and put him on a doorstep. And I was instantly just enraged. I've been mad ever since. My son's 10 years old. My Phoenix Jones st- started like maybe a year into his birth when he got, he got injured in a car break-in. And that's the first dude that I ever went after was, was that guy. I okay, guess okay. You got to tell me this story. Tell me this story. <laughs> so I have my car parked out, outside. This glass gets broken. And my son falls out and, and his leg is cut and he's bleeding. And there's this moment where I have to realize I'm going to have to tell him that it's going to be okay. But how am I going to explain to you that things are going to be okay if I don't do anything about it? The guy who did it is still here. We live in the same place. We have the same car. We live in the same location. Everything's the same. Except for, oh, you'll be fine? I know from my childhood no one is fine. No one's coming for you. No family's going to pick you up. No one's coming to adopt you. You're not leaving this place unless you play sports well, you run faster, or you get a PhD. So when something happens in my area, I don't look at it and go, oh, someone will take care of it. It's my time. And this was my son, and you hurt my things. And I I went after it with a vigor that I think most people wouldn't understand. But I I watched like 19 hours of uh, surveillance camera footage and finally found the dude's car, tracked his license plate, got a PI, drove to his place, knocked on his door, got a hold of him, explained to him the situation. Yeah, can you tell me what that encounter was like? Have you ever heard the saying, real recognize real? No, tell me. Okay, so... You've, have you, you've met some dangerous people, I'm sure, right? Oh, uh, yes. Right. And when you meet them, you're like, I'm not that. Mm. Whatever that is, I'm not it. Mm-hmm. Like sure. you can feel it, right? Oh, sure. When I found this guy, I looked at him, and he knew that we were not the same. He knew and you knew. Yeah. You hurt the only thing I've ever cared about in my world. I will kill you. Yeah. Like the reason you're not dead is because he has another... 17 years of life where he needs me around. So you're going to get in my trunk? I'm not going to say a fucking word. There was no question in his mind that he was going to get in my trunk. There was no question in my mind he was going to get in my trunk. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just... It's the way it was going to happen. Yeah. I didn't want to interrupt Phoenix Jones in that moment, but can I pause here to say, holy shit, he locked a guy in his trunk. That's kidnapping. I got him out of the trunk and I explained to him, the lesson here. 
is that you made a mistake and that you are sorry and that you will not be around making those mistakes. I came out of school, I said, hey, I found the guy who wanted to apologize. He apologized, I said we were buddies. I explained if he made a mistake, we'll not continue to make those mistakes. We smiled, he gave my son a hug and that was the end of that. Because <laughs> the message isn't, your dad's gonna come beat everybody up. Hmm. The message is, you know, if someone wrongs you, ask them why, make them explain themselves. And if they try to run away from you, pull them back. Hmm. Violence isn't necessarily needed to hurt people, but if I tell you you're not going to leave this room till you explain yourself and I'm willing to use violence to do so, the answers seem to come a lot quicker. Hmm. It's like the moments you think that are going to change your life, it's not those moments that do it. It's the moments preceding or before, like the white pages of the comic book, the part you don't really see. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is Phoenix Jones's alleyway murder, his vat of chemicals, his origin story. And it's dark. But that was 10 years ago, and Jones has evolved several times since then, even announcing at one point that he was hanging up his cape. What were the things that made those seasons change? Beginning, not understanding crime, being young, I really didn't understand that people were just going to be bad. Like, I really thought that I was going to stop bad people from being bad. I didn't get that this was an active choice. The way I want to be a superhero, they want to be bad. This is their career. I didn't get that. And then uh, the end of it all was just quantifying the realness. I want to look at stats and numbers. But crime fighting doesn't really have those. It's like being a painter. I've always thought that was dumb because you can't win. <laughs> it's subject to interpretation. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't like subject to interpretation. And I, I'm learning that crime fighting is subject to interpretation. The middle part was the Nicole situation. The Nicole situation, as in the tragic death of Nicole Westbrook, a young woman from New Mexico who'd moved to Seattle with her boyfriend only weeks before. Her name comes up a lot in Phoenix Jones' interviews, and as he began to talk about her in our stuffy vocal booth, he got agitated, started moving around a lot, like he was suddenly really, really uncomfortable. Nicole's a hard one, because it's like the worst experience of my entire life ever, wrapped into one horrible failure. And, and how I feel about it changes on the moment you ask me. Okay. There was a shooting. She got shot in the neck. We were first on scene. We went after the shooter. Shooter dipped around a corner. I didn't chase him around the corner, because you don't pursue a shooter around a corner. You can't see him. We went back to the girl, and we, you know, we gave her as much CPR and aid as we could. And, and essentially, she just died, you know, there. Uh, the streets. Um, and I've seen other people die in other situations, so it wasn't really the death that got me so much. Uh, Nicole was going to die regardless because the shots went off when I heard him. She'd already been shot, so you can't save Nicole. I couldn't do anything about that. The shooter got away as a direct result of me not chasing her around the corner. I didn't chase him because I was scared. But had I known a woman got shot in the face, I may have felt different about it at the time. And that, to me, doesn't make sense, because chasing people is chasing people regardless of the reason why. So that's something I'm going to have to understand. Like, when you get dressed up and call yourself something, you're supposed to do what that person would do. I got dressed up. I called myself a superhero. Superheroes catch bad guys, and I didn't catch him. And then when you're sitting there at the end of a whole situation, the cops ask you all these questions, but then everybody just leaves, you know? And you're, you're sitting there, and uh, all of a sudden, like, a, a fire truck comes up, and it just starts like washing the blood away into the drain, right? And you're sitting there. And after a while, people start going to work. And they start going through their lives. And you realize everybody's okay. You know? This was the biggest moment of my life, but everyone else is fine. 
These guys are walking over where this dead body was of this woman I didn't save. No one feels what I feel. No one shared this experience, and this experience happened to me because I went looking for it. Because I said I was something. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I, I would save people. I went looking for those people to save, and then when it came time to do my job, I didn't do it. And it's like, no one ever expected me to, so no one ever cares that I didn't. But I expected me to. Does that make sense? I mean, sounds like you're being really hard on yourself. I mean, there's nothing hard about running. It's what I do every day. There's nothing hard about following people with weapons. I do it. There's nothing hard about being who you say you're going to be when you dress up and show up to be that person. And when you don't do it, people die. Like, I didn't show up. Like, I don't care what other people say. It's, like, hard on you. You know, it's, it's not hard to put yourself in position. I'm standing in the outfield. The ball was hit to the outfield, and you should catch the fucking ball. Like, it's your job. I don't care how much pressure you're under or what's going on with your life. You're a professional baseball player. You catch balls. I'm the only professional superhero in the world, and I should save people. When I don't save people, it's my fault, regardless of what people say. There's nothing anyone can say to make me feel better, ever, because I know the truth. Their, their lies that they can do themselves don't work for me. I live in a real world. Which is funny to say when you're dressed like a superhero, but my world's real. It has consequences. So, that's just that. I respect that. I'm so sorry. There's nothing to be sorry about. That's the part that's so frustrating. Is I did this to, to myself. I'm hurting for a different reason that people won't understand. It's supposed to balance the scales, and I, I'm not, I have not balanced them. And they will never be balanced for my entire life now. And that's just the way it is. Every day, no matter what accomplishment I do, I know that it doesn't add up to saying that you're a superhero and not chasing somebody around the corner. What's a superhero? Someone who does whatever they say. Someone who does what they say to the best of their abilities all the time. Because they can do what other people can't. And I'm that person. I can do what other people can't. I should work to the best of my abilities. And I didn't. And this is the results. How are you being a superhero now? I don't know. I don't really consider myself one, I guess. I kind of consider myself sort of a, a mass adventurer or... I don't know. Anti-hero, maybe? <sighs> I mean, just the other day, right? Like, I saw some dude who was being mean to somebody, so I, I beat him up and bought a bunch of cheeseburgers for homeless people with the money in his wallet. So it's like, does that make you a superhero? I don't know. I feel pretty fucking super. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. It depends how you look at it. I think we're all damaged and just kind of acting out our own damage in our own ways. You said that you wanted to ask me some things. What are you curious about? Okay. How are you not mad? Oh, I am mad. <laughs> That's an easy answer. I'm totally mad. What are you going to do? Me and Chris were discussing this recently because um, he thinks that I have a very um, trauma-informed response because I was plucked out of real life and put into a jail cell for something I didn't do. And I spent four years there. And I didn't know if I was ever going to get out. I realized how helpless I could be. I realized how, just how weak I was. And I will never forget that. I will never forget how sometimes there's nothing you can do. I call it the base. What's that? We yeah. joke about it in crime fighting. It's when you hit your base. 
Hmm. Like, like I didn't see it in you until we talked about being mad. Hmm. I was surprised. I was like, where is it? Like mine, like you can feel mine. Mine's violent anger. Hmm. Like when you look at me, you think that guy wants to do something. Your like anger you comes from a why. Hmm. That's your question. Why? I'm innocent. Why? 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 But why is the hardest thing to feel better about? Because there's no why for it. Me and you know, some people get fucked. There's nothing you can do about it. And the people say, oh, you always have a choice. You don't. <laughs> you don't. They don't know that. They really think they have a choice. They don't know what it's like. <laughs> One of the worst moments of my life ever is uh, we were looking down at Nicole when she got shot. My friend Jack looked at me and he said, just put the blood back in. <laughs> but there's not a way to do that. Never going to happen. There's not a way to do that. And at a certain point when you stand there and you realize there's not a way to do something, there's no training, there's no running, there's no gym, there's nothing. If 20-year-old Ben met 30-year-old Ben, he'd be very disappointed in the way that Ben feels. 20-year-old Ben would tell Ben that you can save everybody and you've got to believe in them and the coal's not your fault. Adoption's fine and everything's going to be okay. And 30-year-old Ben would say, no, I tried for a decade. It's not going to be okay. People are going to die and you need to go to the gym right now because it's a war. And the only person out there who knows that we're at war is you. That's it. There's a few other people out there who are at their base. People like you. We're at our base. And when you're here, there's some realness. Real recognizes real. They're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. And now that I'm at my base and there's nothing left to destroy, I don't know what I represent. I don't know what I fight for anymore. I just guess I fight because I don't like bullies. It just doesn't feel like it has as much of a... as it used to, you know? My life's had a lot of goals I set and made and didn't feel good about. And I had to understand what that means. Like, you'll be fine when you're a black belt in Taekwondo. No, you're not. You'll be fine when you're a main champion. You're not. You'll be fine when you're a superhero. You're not. You'll be fine when you stop a terrorist act. You're not. At a certain point, you have to figure out what's wrong with you and tackle that shit head on. And that's where you find me at. Hmm. So let's go back to that moment with your son. Hmm? If you had just been like, ah, it's, it's okay, son, even though you knew it wasn't, yeah. Could you, would you have just be carrying a different damage? My son getting the car broken into and him getting cut and all of that. Why didn't I just take him to a police station and explain to him that the police in Linwood have an 86% crime solve rate? So there's 13% chance that your crime won't get solved. So if this happens to you 100 times, 87 times, you'll be safe and 13 you won't. This is one of your 13. So as life goes, you're going to have less of a chance of this being your bad time. I'm sorry this happened to you. Life's like waves. Sometimes the tide's out, sometimes the tide's in, son. Today the tide was in. But it didn't reel to me because the tide doesn't come in on everybody. Mm-hmm. I watched the world. It doesn't come in on everybody. It came in on me. And why did it think it could come after me? Because it thought I was weak. Someone targeted me. Someone thought it was weak. Life thought it could come at me. And it's not going to get me. I've had too much shit come at me. I'm coming for you now. I kind of caught you in a weird moment, huh? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like you're, you're digging deep into it. There's you're... nothing to hide anymore. Hmm. There's nothing to hide. Like before, I had to hide. Because you had to think of me as a certain way. Because I needed to be that for them in my mind. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be anything for them anymore. I've given them enough. They've given me nothing, and at this point, I'm doing it for me. If you like it, awesome. I'd love to hear you cheer. If you don't like it, you should probably get out of my way. You're either with me or you're against me. My life experiences have given me a lot of reason to be intellectually 
and viscerally concerned about due process and the dangers of vigilantism. It wasn't until I talked to Phoenix Jones that I felt I could fully appreciate the spirit that animates a figure like Batman. That sense of not being able to live with yourself if you don't do what you feel is right, even if the world's against you. Which puts me in a weird place when I go back to the real world of criminal justice, talking with DA Pete Holmes. Because his answers to all of these problems are probably the best answers we have, but they don't come close to resolving the internal torment that Phoenix Jones carries with him. The torment that motivates him, night after night, to walk into danger, risking his life to help people and to help himself. You're a prosecutor. You're in the business of not being indifferent to crimes. If you could sit down on the curb with Phoenix Jones as he's watching as Nicole's blood is being washed away, what would you tell him? We're not in control. And it's very important that people understand that, you know, all of us are mortal. Sometimes at best, all we can do is hold someone accountable after a tragedy. And uh, that takes its toll on anyone that cares. Phoenix can help now by demonstrating that these were good impulses that got out of hand. He has an opportunity to be the bigger man now and say, I was misguided, I had good intentions, but that's not enough. You have to live your life knowing that there are people working for good and ill, uh, you know, every day. You can't possibly address every wrongdoer that's going on in the world, not even in close proximity. Have you ever felt stymied at all by any of the rules? Do you ever wish like there was just one less bit of protocol that you had to follow to get justice done? Only every day. So, <laughs> you know, you can't prevent all misery and suffering. You can't get shortcuts that don't have their own counter consequences. And mm -hmm. so um, I think that I just have to remind myself of that all the time. So, <laughs> you know, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we're a nation of laws, not men. At the start of this journey, I didn't realize how varied vigilantism could be. There are the people who feel that the law has not protected them, like the residents of Skidmore who shot Kenrex McElroy, or Raymond Brochiers in the Lavender Panthers. There are those seeking vengeance, like Gary Plochet and Marv Hemeyer with his killdozer. There's the militias and e-vigilantes who work alongside official law enforcement, but in the shadows. There are the lynch mobs who think they know better than a jury. And there are those rare birds like Phoenix Jones, who feel compelled to put on a bulletproof suit and patrol the streets. These forms of vigilantism are all so different. I can't lump them together with a blanket ruling. Vigilantism is wrong. The rule of law is all that matters. And that's because coming into contact with all these disparate vigilantes, I've realized that capital J justice isn't just the prerogative of law enforcement and the justice system. Justice belongs to all of us, and justice is all of our responsibility. And maybe that means firing up the bat signal sometimes and asking for help from whoever's willing to put on that mask. 
or being that person and heeding the call. Regardless, we can't just expect someone or something else to come along and fix our problems for us, be our hero. Sometimes we have to be our own heroes. Sometimes we have to police ourselves. And sometimes we just have to accept that there's nothing you can do to balance the scales. At least, not today. That's it for season four, but don't go anywhere because The Truth About True Crime will be back in November, looking into the preppy murder, Death in Central Park, a Sundance TV docuseries about the 1986 murder of Jennifer Levin by Robert Chambers and the tabloid frenzy that surrounded it. This podcast is written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner, Christopher Robinson, and directed, edited, and sound designed by Galen Mullins. It is executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance TV, and AMC Digital Studios. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing, at SundanceTV.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.